In Christ Jesus, dear fellow redeemed, grace and peace is ours in abundance through our Heavenly Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. As we have been saying, this is Trinity Sunday. Uh, this is one of the teachings from God's Word that the Christian church has had monumental struggles with and about for the entire history of the Christian church. It all pretty much came to a head, though, in the 300s, and people gave their lives for their views on whether or not God was three in one, three persons, a Father, a Son, and a Holy Spirit in one God. And some, some gave their lives for disagreeing with that teaching. Others gave their lives and their livelihoods for agreeing with that teaching. But what came out of that era, Nicene Creed, which clearly talks about the Trinity, even without using the word, and another creed that very few people know called the Athanasian Creed, but you can find it online or find it in the internet. We are a church that believes that the God's Word teaches the Trinity, along with many other Christian churches. We hold to that teaching. But it is such a transcendent, mysterious teaching that many people get hung up on it, and even Bible-toting religions will often reject it two very notorious churches that reject the idea that God is one God with three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or Mormons. They both have very distinct teachings, but they both reject the deity of Christ and the triune God. In fact, I have memories, and I bet it's not over for me yet, of people that were spreading their message uh, wanting to engage me very quickly after we started a conversation and whether or not God is triune. And one time, two young men at my door said, you have a God with three heads. And it felt like they were presenting God as a monstrosity. It is the way that our intellect tries to understand the Trinity. But as a shepherd and as your pastor, what I really want to do is help you see from Scripture why God revealed that he is a triune God. And as a shepherd, I want you to fall in love with God as your triune God that's because you understand the relational, emotional, and spiritual reason it was important for him to ultimately tell humanity that he was a Father, Son, and a Holy Spirit. And I'm going to show you as we walk through the Bible. So what we're going to do is start in the book of Genesis, and we're going to look at, skip like a rock through the Bible, and we're going to find about maybe seven or eight verses that, that lead us to understand that the Bible is presenting God as a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but one God. And we're going to find out why He did that for us. The first passage is in Genesis chapter 1. It, the, the Genesis 1 is God telling <clears throat> the story of Him creating all things. The, the universe, the earth, the water, the sky, the birds, the fish, the creeping things, and on the sixth day, man and woman. And we're going to look at Genesis chapter 1 now, verse 26. And this is what it says. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may, have, they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. You see the words that I have highlighted there? Let us. This is the first place in the very first chapter of the Bible where God tips his hand a little bit of there's some kind of plurality. Some people have surmised what he was saying was to the angels, let us make man in our image. 
But God did not make people in the image of angels. And anytime God talks about angels in the Old Testament, like Psalm 103, 104, or he talks about it in the New Testament with Jesus in Matthew 23, God is differentiating between us and the angels. Also look at Hebrews 1, you'll, Psalm 8. You'll see that God says, no, humans are not made in the image of angels. So he's not talking to the angels. He's talking amongst himself. I know that doesn't even sound right, but it's part of that transcendent, mysterious nature of God being three in one. Nothing is said about three in one here. It's just God saying, let us make man in our image. The image of God is perfect and holy in love and peace and complete unity. So man was made, humans were made to be holy, and they were holy in the image of God. It also includes, though, something much farther above nature. Man has an imagination, the power of memory, and, it, and we also have a relational ability to collate and organize into family groups. There's a husband and a wife. We're the only species on the whole planet that has this idea of a marriage commitment that's made with the volition of the heart and his expression of a relationship and a building block of society. All that happens in Genesis 1 and 2 when God says, let us make man in our image. It's the first hint of the Trinity, and it's the first hint of also God's design for man was that man would be in perfect harmony with God and each other. So let's move forward. Adam and Eve fall into sin, and there's chaos in their family that God intended for there to be peaceful. Cain kills Abel in his jealousy. There's diversity. People don't understand how, many don't understand how to worship God and appreciate his grace and mercy. And God has been promising from the time that uh, Adam and Eve fell into sin, a savior who would crush the devil's head. And he makes promises throughout the Old Testament. And we get to Psalm 2, and it's now a thousand years before Christ and several thousand years since the creation of the world. And David writes Psalm 2. But he's speaking for God from heaven. And David, David's Psalms are quoted more in the New Testament as prophecy about the Christ than any other book in the Old Testament is quoted in the New. And so Psalm 2 is quoted several times by the apostles. You can see it in the book of Acts. You can also see it in Hebrews chapter 1. But I just want to read to you this one verse out of Psalm 2. So you see David opening the door a little wider for us to see a picture of the Trinity from a certain glance. Psalm 2, verse 7. I will proclaim decree, he said to me. You are my son. Today you have become, I have become your father. You are my son, and today I have become your father. This is when God reveals to us for the first time in the Old Testament that when the coming anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, comes, he will be one from eternity that God the Father has been calling God the Son. <clears throat> Excuse me. By the end of Psalm 2, he says, kiss the Son lest he become angry with you. And he says to the Son, I'll give you the inheritance of the nations. It says in Revelation that, that, that Jesus is the one worthy to open the scrolls of the future because he pleased the Father by doing what the Father wanted. He purchased souls for men. You can kind of hear echoes in this psalm of God in, in Jesus' baptism saying, this is my beloved Son, listen to him. In him I am well pleased. There is no question that God is already in the Old Testament revealing to us that in heaven there's a relational being that the let us of Genesis 1 is expressed in a father-son relationship. 
But there's also a being called the Spirit. He shows up in the first couple verses of the Bible when the Spirit of the Lord was hovering over the face of the deep. And he's the, the Father's in heaven and the Spirit it leaves Saul and, and, and the Spirit comes on David and he comes on prophets. So there's this other being that's separate from the Father himself but also is God. It's, it's a fascinating, transcendent teaching that we can't understand logically. But we were never supposed to put him in a box and dissect him. And what happens to a frog when you dissect it is that you kill it. And we were never supposed to kill God intellectually by dissecting him and understand how he could be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet one God only. But he's revealing it through his Bible, and we're moving forward. The Bible was written over 1,500 years. It took to write the whole book, over 60 authors. And so as it was developing and time was passing, more and more verses came out until the Christ came and talked about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in, in a bigger way than anybody else ever had. And this is Triune Sunday, Trinity Sunday. And this is why we're focusing on why did God reveal himself to us as a trinity? So let's go to the next verse. This verse is, is uh, Jesus talking in, actually it's John the Apostle talking about Jesus in his prologue, in his opening to his Gospel of John. And this is what he says. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the opening chapter of John's 21-chapter gospel. And he says that Jesus is God, the one and son of God, at the Father's side, and he has revealed him to us. This is what John says. As you go through the gospel of John, John tells us quotes from Jesus about his father and him being the son and his relationship with the father that are not found in any other of the, of the four gospels. Remember, John wrote later than the first three gospel writers, and he was filling in some huge gaps, and they needed to be filled in because some false teachers at the end of the first century, when John wrote this gospel, they were starting to say things about Jesus and the Father that were wrong, especially about Jesus' real work. Was, they said was not saving humanity, but was teaching humanity. But they also said Jesus wasn't God, and the Father and Jesus were not one, and they had all, and, and John had lived through it all, and he was the last living apostle, so he shares with us so many quotes from Jesus. And so this one from John is saying that Jesus revealed from the Father's side that he was, a, he was God's son, and that he was the only begotten son of a father, and that he gave us the right to become children of God in his name. And that's where you start to see passages and thoughts about the family feeling between God and the Father, God, the Son, and the humanity, and how they're welcoming us into the family in the redemption and the restoration. And so I, I don't have time in one little to share all these passages with you, but what I'm really trying to do is to show you the key ones and whet your appetite and send you on your own exploration of your wonderful relationship with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we're going to move on. The most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16. It's a verse that Jesus spoke to Nicodemus late at night. And it goes like this. For God so loved the whole world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have ever eternal life. When you take John 3.16 in the fabric of John's gospel, and you see that it starts with Jesus is the only one begotten of the Father and at the Father's side. He has made God the Father known to us. 
And then you see him making God the Father known to Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a religious leader that said to Jesus, we know that you are from God because no one can do the miracles that you do unless God is with him. And then Jesus says, well, no one can see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And then he says this verse, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He is revealing to Nicodemus that if you want to know God, you have to know what that father God gave up. He loved the world so much that he gave up his one and only begotten son so that we, the family, we, had, we were like the younger son in the parable Jesus told in Luke 15 that went away and Jesus gave up himself so we could be bought back, so our whole debt could be paid, so we could know that we were completely forgiven and it had nothing to do with us. That not only did God love us enough to make us, but even when we ran away from the family in our sin, he redeemed us and gave us the way back that is real satisfaction of justice, but also a beautiful message that invites us to come home to God. And so Jesus says, God so loved the world, Nicodemus, that includes you, that he gave his one and only son. And Jesus is the son that's sitting there But he's revealing to Nicodemus that there's a father who gave up the son. And later when Nicodemus took Jesus' body down from the cross, along with Joseph of Arimathea, he would be thinking, the father gave the son for me. And this is why God reveals himself as a father and a son. He is a father and a son, but had he not revealed it to us, we wouldn't see this beautiful good news of sacrifice to bring us into the family. So we're going to move forward to another verse in John's gospel. After a conversation with Nicodemus in the, in late at night, in the dark at midnight, now go to, to, it's a different time of the day. It's several. Now he's talking to a woman at 12 noon and it's the heat of the day. And she's avoiding the scrutiny of the village in Samaria. And she's been married five times and she's been divorced five times. And she's living with a man without being married, but she doesn't know that Jesus knows that. And that's not the only problem in her life. That's just the symptom. The biggest problem is that she does not know God as her father. She knows it as some just religion of the Samaritans that she kind of shallowly adheres to because it's part of her culture. And this is where Jesus takes her from having a corporate cultural religion to a personal faith in a God who loves her enough to send his son. And this is what he does. He reveals her sin to her that he already knows about. She finds out he knows. And then he says, she says, well, I perceive you're a prophet. Let's argue about where you should worship. And this is what he says. The time is coming and has now come when, and this is in John chapter four, verse 23. A time is now coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth. They are the ones the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. Again, we are so used to hearing some of these passages that we focus on spirit and in truth, and we miss the fact that Jesus is the one that's revealing to us that there's a Father. The woman hasn't been talking about God as a Father. She hasn't heard anybody lately talk about that either. And Jesus says, woman, you want to talk about where you should worship? He said, we should worship the Father in spirit and in truth, because that's what he seeks in his heart. God the Father wants you to know 
what his love is and what it means so you can worship him in the truth of an appreciative, adherent, a appreciative child that loves being adopted and being a member of the family by grace. And Jesus is going to reveal to her his grace and his mercy and who he is and why he is here. And the story develops that way. But right now he's just telling her the father seeks people to worship him based on a knowledge of his father's heart and the grace that he would have that he would give up his son. Now do you see why God is revealing himself as a father and a son and a Holy Spirit? It's so that we might know his heart. And that's what I'm showing you as you see these passages unfold in the Bible. We're going to move forward and we're going to jump past some passages about Jesus and the Father and their love for us in, that are in John's gospel. There's some in chapter 10. We're going to some in other chapters. We're going to move forward now to John chapter 20. And Jesus has died and he's risen again. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He's risen from the dead and he appears on Easter morning to Mary again about this trinity in Jesus' words to Mary. And I want you to see it. It's in John chapter 20. Let's read it. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. This is what drives people crazy who try to intellectually understand the Trinity. Jesus in places, calls himself God. Like John wrote in John chapter 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus is the Word, and Jesus is God. John wrote all that. But here Jesus says, well, I'm going to ascend to my God. Well, how can he be God and say my God? It drives people crazy. You're not supposed to intellectually understand it. You're supposed to relationally understand it. As a, a human being, Jesus became down and descended down to be one of us as a human brother. But as God himself, he's still the almighty everlasting God. As a human being, the risen Lord, the almighty God, he can speak as a human. He's God the Father is my God. He can also, though, speak as God and say, I and the Father are one, like he did in John 10. But here with Mary, what he's saying is relational. Tells, I'm going to my Father who is your Father. My God, who is your God. Jesus isn't trying to get you to start intellectually dissecting him and kill the frog. What he's trying to get you to do is to see that you now have the same status that he has because he finished his work. He rose from the dead. We are forgiven and we are children of God through faith in that Jesus. We are brothers and sisters in his family. And he's right by our side and he's right by the Father's side. And we've been enveloped into the circle the night before he died in John 15, 16, he talks about, maybe John 14 through 16, he talks about that if we will trust his word and treasure it and obey his word, that he and the Father will come and live with us and they will envelop us inside of their family and we'll be one with the Father and one with Jesus and one with each other. And it's relational. He's always wanted this. It's what he came to do. It's why he revealed that he's Trinity. Not as an intellectual exercise to be argued with, but a spiritual truth to be embraced. On Trinity Sunday, that's what we're emphasizing for us. And we're going to move on to a couple more passages, and then we're done. So I want you to see, see in John chapter 15, something Jesus said the night before he died. And this is where we talk about the Holy Spirit. John 15. When the Advocate comes, meaning the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you 
from the Father. The Spirit who goes out from the Father, He will testify about me. I remember growing up, and even as an adult, but growing up, standing up to say the creed, saying that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, and who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. That's the Nicene Creed. I remember thinking, what got under somebody's skin that they had to expand that so carefully? The proceeds from the Father and the Son. Well, this is the Bible passage that was, was, was re- revealed and used and spoke to the assembly uh, in the 300s when they ironed out, what is God really telling us about Him being triune? And what it does is it teaches us that the Holy Spirit is not just a force, but He's a real person. But that He, the Holy Spirit was sent by the Father and the Son as the perfect representative of truth that they taught. The, the disciples before Pentecost were still mixed up about Jesus' word and plan. And he said, wait in Jerusalem till the spirit that I promised comes. Here, the night before he died, he says, I'm promising that I'm going to send him. In chapter 16, this, is, this verse is from 15, but in chapter 16, Jesus says, uh, the spirit will guide you into all truth and I will send him from the Father. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit always act in perfect unity. In fact, the, word, the deeds that they do that's outside of the in workings, you, can, you find verses that attribute all these external deeds to all three of them. God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. The Holy Spirit in 1 Peter 3 raises Jesus from the dead. And Jesus said he would raise himself from the dead. God the Father created the world. In John 1, the Jesus created the world. And in Genesis 1, the Spirit of God created the world. You can see that they're all attributed the same because God wants us to know. I've always from eternity been a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when I made humanity in my image, now I'm going to bring this all together. When I made humanity in my image, I wanted to have a relationship with Adam and Eve and all their children that is perfect, in perfect harmony with love and truth and the, the beauty of creation and the beauty of the creation of truth all at one time, all in relation, fellowship, friendship, enjoying each other's personality. And we blew it. And we lost it all. But he restored it. Because he is the triune God, perfect in love. And he restores unity between people and God and between people and people. When Jesus was about to ascend into heaven, we're going to look now at Matthew 28. It's called the Great Commission passage. When Jesus was going to ascend into heaven, he said, go and make followers of me and baptize them in my name. And that's how you make followers. So this is what he said. He says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. It's like John three sixteen. It's one of the best known passages in the Bible. But I want you to notice something that often maybe gets past you because this is Trinity Sunday. This is the verse that makes us say the words when we baptize a person. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In the name of. In the name of. What's that about? It's about that family adoption. When, that, when, when a child is born into a family in our country, in our state, they have a legal right as a member of that family. When a child is adopted into the family, they have the same legal right. 
as an heir of the family and also with all the protection and rules that govern family life. When, a, when, a, when we are brought into God's family, we take on God's name and we, it shows that we have a legal right to everything that Jesus did for us. So our baptism is supposed to be to us a security blanket that we are adopted into God's family. <clears throat> baptism, I mean like the adoption certificate that a child would have that they are now able to carry that family's last name and have all the rights and privileges of being a member of that family. So our baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is in the name of the God the Father who gave up God the Son, who lovingly, patiently sends the Holy Spirit to pursue us with the truth of the gospel and the Bible that God wrote that reveals all of this. And he wins us over with his living word of the Holy Spirit that was written through people that he inspired, and now he sends it out into our hearts, and he connects us with the Father and the Son and himself, and we're part of that family that has a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at the top, and we're all file in under it, and we're welcomed through grace, and we're restored. And it's only when we live in that gospel that we act like family members. I'm pausing because I want you to catch that. Now, just look real quickly at what, the, what I put here on the screen. Go to the next slide. Why did God reveal to us that he's triune? First of all, he wants us to see that we have a place in his heart. The father gave his son for us. The son gave himself and his relationship away that he had with the father for us. And the spirit dedicates his whole self to bringing us in. We have a place in it. Secondly, it's so that we'd, have, we'd, we'd get to see that we have a place in his family. Because we need to know that to be secure and, and, and significant. And those are two basic needs that every human being has. We were made to be secure and to have an impact and have significance. And we can lose that so much in a sinful world, especially if our families fall apart. Isn't there something amazingly powerful about being a member of a family and getting together as a family. It's something that we, we almost like addicts will look forward to like we need it desperately and we want that approval. You can have a, a, a crummy mom and dad who have a fantastic son or daughter doing wonders in the world and in their families apart from their mom and dad, but they still crave the approval of their parents. And they still love being home with the, the larger family at least once a year. And when they are together and it goes well and there's family friendship, maybe at the celebration days like Christmas, Easter, and Thanksgiving and other times, you go away with your cup filled up and you feel strong. And when there's connections in between through uh, uh, technology, you know, Facebook, texting, whatever, with your family, you feel strong. And also, conversely, you feel very, very weak. Even if you have the approval of many other people, have the kind of family feeling that you were meant to have. You know why? Because we were made that way. And we, because sin has wrecked that, grace had to come in and restore that. So what grace does is it brings us into Christ's family, and Christ's family becomes our strongest family. What's really cool for a Christian family is they get the best of both worlds. A human family that is in Christ and the Christian family that's a part of the same. But all Christians get to be part of the Christian family, which is enough. 
for significance and security in your life because you are named by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if you are a member of God the Father's family, He's teaching you in your heart to love this world the way that He does. In Ephesians chapter 3, and we're not going to look at this together, but in Ephesians chapter 3, I want you to read it when you get time. Paul says, I bow my knee to the Father under whom, under His heaven, every family under heaven derives its name. I'm bowing that my knee to Him, that He would teach you how big and wide and wonderful His love is, and in His power of His Spirit, He would cleanse you in your inner man to show you His purposes. In 1 John the letter that John wrote, 1 John 4 and 5, impossible for you to say, I love God and hate a person or hate your brother because God's love is in you reaching out. God is love and he will teach you to love your brother. But God also teaches you to love your enemies because he loves the whole world and he wants the salvation of the, the, the worst perpetrator as much as he wants salvation for their victim. And the more you grow in the Father's love, the more you understand that Jesus' love is big enough to forgive both the perpetrator and the victim. And you want that for all people. You long for that, and you're willing to throw yourself into being a part of that in some way as a move, being a part of the movement of the family of Jesus Christ on this planet. So you see, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit brought you into the family, and the family's making a name for God in this world. And you're a part of that. Relish it, accept it, and embrace it as a responsibility and champion it in your life. And you'll know, and, and get together with other Christians any way that you can. And you'll have security and significance that comes from the triune God. Amen.